Welcome to the Faith Life Fellowship Podcast with Dr. Scott Forrest. In today's message, Dr. Forrest presents part one of his series, Victory in the Midst of Seeming Defeat. Well, I want to take a few minutes this morning and lay some groundwork here. And I want to get us to a place where we have a mindset or a paradigm, the conviction that we are more than conquerors. And we should learn to see victory in the midst of seeming defeat. Victory in the midst of seeming defeat. Instead of living in defeat, as many Christians do, never realizing what Jesus has done for us, and never really live in the life of victory that he planned. So I want to show you that this mindset of victory is firmly established and grounded in the word. And we can use that word to establish a theme that embraces the concept of victory in the midst of seeming defeat. Amen? And once we establish that theme, we're going to explore real stories of real people just like you and me who have faced certain defeat, and yet they were victorious. And the reason I felt prompted of the Lord to do this for the next three or four weeks is because we as the people of God need hope in the midst of our great national crisis. It seems like our nation is spiraling quickly downward, morally, legally, and every other way you can think of. It seems like justice is failing us on every front. But I believe God has victory in store for America, even in the midst of seeming defeat. Turn with me in your devices or in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through verse 37. I'll be reading in the Passion Translation. That's Romans chapter 8. Verse 35 through 37. Now I'll let you know ahead of time that the Passion Translation is pretty wordy. But it's wordy in a great way. All right, Romans 8, 35. Who could ever separate us from the endless love of God's anointed one? Absolutely no one. For nothing in the universe has the power to diminish his love toward us. Troubles, pressures, and problems are unable to come between us and heaven's love. What about persecutions, deprivations, most translations say hunger and nakedness, dangers and death threats? No, for they are all impotent or powerless to hinder omnipotent love. All these things he mentioned are powerless to hinder God's all powerful love. Amen. Verse 36, even though it is written all day long, we face death threats for your sake, God. We are considered to be nothing more than sheep to be slaughtered. That's a quote from Psalm 44, 22. Yet listen to this. Yet even in the midst, there's that word. Yet even in the midst of all these things, we triumph over them all. For God has made us to be more than conquerors, and His demonstrated love is our glorious victory over everything. 
Did you hear that? That is worth reading again. That is worth repeating. Yet even in the midst of all these things, even in the midst of seeming defeat, we triumph over them all. For God has made us to be more than conquerors. And His demonstrated love is our glorious victory over everything. Does that leave anything out? No. So the first thing I want you to see in this passage is that the power of God's love is what brings us victory over everything. Indeed, Romans 8.37 tells us that God's love has made us more than conquerors in three important ways. Now, before I give you these three points, I want you to know that I borrowed heavily from the footnotes in the Passion Translation. Of course, I changed them up a bit and I put my own spin on them. But I wanted to give credit where credit is due. So once again, Romans 8, 37 tells us that God's love has made us more than conquerors in three important ways. Number one, listen to every one of these is awesome. Number one, no situation in life can defeat us or lessen God's love for us. No situation in life can defeat us or lessen God's love for us. Listen, you might have done some things that were downright sinful. Join the club. And those things might have put you in a situation that is complicated and messy. I think I'm talking to somebody here this morning. But there's one thing that you need to know. Nothing you have done, nothing you are doing, and nothing you will ever do will ever change God's love for you. His love is totally independent of your performance. It is based on Jesus' performance. It is based on what He did. Now that doesn't mean you should keep on living in sin because He paid the price to set you free from all of that. To set you free from sin and death. Why wallow in the mud any more than you have to? Number two. These are reasons why God's love makes us more than conquerors. Number two, we know that God's love and God's power work together for us and in us so that we triumph over all things. All things. God's power works on our behalf because first and foremost, He loves us. When God moves through the gifts of the Spirit or through signs, wonders, and miracles, it's because He loves us, not because He wants to show off. Now, He might want to show off a little bit because He's God, but that is not His primary motivation. He moves in the gifts. He moves in healing. He moves in signs, wonders, and miracles because He loves people. It is because He loves us both sinner and saint. And he wants to show us how much he loves us by moving mightily on our behalf. When I was raising three young daughters, I was very protective of them, and I was always on the alert for any sign of danger that might come their way. And I was ready to use my power on their behalf to keep them from harm or rescue them from any dangerous situation. You listen, I used to be a Marine, 
And I was ready to go Marine on anybody that would bring harm to my daughters. Why? Because I loved them. I loved them fiercely. And I still do. I want to share a testimony along these lines. And it might embarrass Marcy, but she doesn't even remember this. When Trish and I were stationed at Naval Air Station Corpus Christi, we would spend many of our summer weekends at the officer's club pool. One of those days, I was standing at the edge of the baby pool watching over Marcy, who was waiting around in the shallow end. She was just a little over one year old. Well, in the center of this pool, there was a fountain, and it suddenly attracted her attention. So she started bolting toward the fountain, not realizing that the closer you get to the fountain, the deeper the water gets. Although it wasn't that deep, it was deep enough to cover her head. So I instantly knew that I wasn't going to be able to reach her in time to keep her from slipping under the water. And even though I knew that I would get there in plenty of time to keep her from drowning... I realized that I would not be able to spare her the few seconds of panic and fear that she would feel as she slipped under the water before I got there and lifted her out. When I lifted her out, I held her to my chest. I comforted her as best I could, and my heart began to hurt in a way that is difficult to describe. You see, it was my intense desire that my little girl would never experience even a hint of fear or panic or danger. Yet she did, and it brought great pain to my heart. The reason I remember it so vividly is because I believe I tapped into the heart of my heavenly father that day. I got an inkling of how he felt about you and me. He doesn't want us to experience even a hint of panic or fear in the face of danger or in the face of impossible odds. He doesn't want us to suffer even minor injury or pain. You can find that in Psalm 91. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that this is how intensely your heavenly father loves you and me. Only he doesn't have human limitations. He goes way above and way beyond human limitations. He demonstrates his love for us by making us more than conquerors, triumphant and victorious over every danger and every foe that we face. Because he loves us, he brings us victory in the midst of seeming defeat. Number three reason why God's love makes us more than conquerors. We share in the victory spoils of every enemy we face. That means all the riches of the enemy, every good thing they possess, becomes ours when we conquer them in battle. Including any and all things that might have been stolen from us previously. Let me show you that in the Word. Isaiah 53, verse 12. The first part of the verse, Isaiah 53, verse 12. Again, in the Passion Translation. So I, Yahweh, 
will assign him a portion among a great multitude, and he will triumph and divide the spoils of victory with his mighty ones, all because he poured out his lifeblood to death. Now, if you read this verse in context, it's pretty easy to see that it's a prophecy about how Jesus would pour out his blood and die on the cross for all mankind. But it also makes reference to the victory that that cross represents. In fact, Isaiah prophesied 700 years before it was fulfilled that Jesus, our coming Redeemer, would share the spoils of His victory on the cross and in His resurrection with us who He calls His mighty ones. Amen? Isn't that cool? And here are some of the spoils He shared with us. He purchased our victory. He purchased our salvation. He purchased our emotional wholeness. He purchased our healing. He purchased our deliverance. He purchased our triumph over every foe. I really feel led of the Holy Spirit to say that again, so I'm going to say it again. I'm going to read them again. Here are some of the spoils, the victory spoils that Jesus shared with us. He purchased our victory. He purchased our salvation. He purchased our emotional wholeness. He purchased our healing. He purchased our deliverance. He purchased our triumph over every foe. Glory to God. Hallelujah. All right. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Colossians chapter 2, 14 and 15. Again, in the Passion Translation. This is awesome. He canceled out every legal violation we had on our record and the old arrest warrant that stood to indict us. He erased it all, our sins, our stained soul. He deleted it all, and they cannot be retrieved. Everything we once were in Adam has been placed onto his cross and nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. Ooh, let me break that down for you a little bit. It was a Roman custom that when someone went to prison, a list of crimes or debts would be nailed to their cell door. It was called a certificate of debt. If someone else was able to pay their debt, the list would be marked with a statement that basically said, paid in full. And of course, the prisoner would go free and he would take that parchment with him as proof that he had been set free. Amen. Listen, sometimes when the devil brings accusation against you, you need to bring your proof, which is your Bible, and say, No, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for me. Amen. I think it's cool that Paul was able to skillfully weave that mental picture into this concept of nailing all our sins and nailing all our failures to the cross of Christ. It was heaven's way of saying, your debt is paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, while verse 14 talks about what Jesus did on the cross, verse 15 shifts to the scene in hell after he descended into hell. 
Verse 15 says, Then Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness, stripping away from them every weapon and all their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. And by the power of the cross, Jesus led them around as prisoners in a procession of triumph. He was not their prisoner. They were his. Amen. Now, I personally believe that Jesus went into hell as a conqueror, not as a victim. Now, he might have been a victim in the sense that he had to stay there for three days and three nights because it was prophesied and he was out of communion with his father. But I don't believe any devil in hell came near him or tried to torment him in any way. That's just my personal belief. I believe they just watched him warily to see what he would do. Kind of left him alone. You know, that's Jesus over there, you know. But after his time was up and they saw the resurrection power of God come upon Jesus, they knew they were in trouble. Then all the demonic forces of hell attacked him from all sides. This is my belief. Because they were desperately trying to keep the Son of God from escaping hell. Maybe they were convinced that they could keep him there forever. But Jesus rose up in resurrection power and single-handedly routed the forces of the devil. He took the keys of death, hell, and the grave from the devil himself and then paraded the devil and all his demons all around hell as a show of their humiliating defeat. And thank God he did. He is a defeated foe. He operates in the atmosphere of earth as an outlaw. But it's our job to enforce the law against him. Now, I personally visualize this scene that's described in verse 15 as Jesus whipping them real good and then parading them around in chains, laughing in triumph as he went. Now, it may not be exactly what happened, my version, because Scripture doesn't give us the details. But we know there was a fierce battle because there was a triumphant victory parade afterwards described in verse 15. So we know something went on, and it wasn't good for the devil. And we know that Jesus did leave hell, re-enter his body, and he was raised from the dead. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So in my view, this is the ultimate story of victory in the face of seeming defeat. You're in hell, and no one else has ever gotten out. But you are getting out. Hallelujah. Because the resurrection power of God is on you. Because you are the son of the living God. Hallelujah. And all because the father loved a son who was willing to give it all for you and me. Now to cap off today's message. I want to share a story from the Bible that epitomizes, at least at the human level, this concept of victory in the midst of seeming defeat. It is the story of King Hezekiah and the siege of Jerusalem by King Sennacherib of Assyria. I'm going to give you some background, then we're going to read some scripture. King Hezekiah, as many of you may know, was a godly king. 
He was much like his ancestor David, and he led the nation of Israel into great spiritual revival after a long period of spiritual decay. But when he decided to stop paying tribute to the nation of Assyria, Hezekiah received a threatening letter from King Sennacherib of Assyria. In the letter, he was told that the Assyrian army would come and lay siege to Jerusalem and destroy it. By the time he received this letter, the city of Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel to the north of them had already been destroyed by Assyria and most of the cities of Judah as well. Only Jerusalem was left. The Assyrians were going through the land like locusts, marching through the land, devouring everything in sight. It was a very frightful time for the people of Judah. They knew that if Jerusalem fell, the entire nation of Judah would collapse. And I might add, it would endanger the line of Jesus. Hundreds of thousands would die and many would be carried away captive to Assyria, just like it happened to their brothers and sisters to the north in the kingdom of Israel. So let's pick up the story in 2 Kings chapter 19. We'll start at verse 14. 2 Kings 19 verse 14. We're going to read a bit of scriptures, but as I've said many times before, just consider it story time with Dr. Scott. It's good to read the Bible in church. Amen. So 2 Kings 19, starting at verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. I love this. He put that in the atmosphere, and then the prophet Isaiah picked up on that in the atmosphere, and he came back and he prophesied to Hezekiah in the very next verse. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. And he says a bunch of stuff. But we're going to read all that stuff. We're going to go down to verse 32. This is still Isaiah prophesying. Therefore, thus says the Lord God concerning the king of Assyria. He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. 
Listen, when King Hezekiah and the people of Judah woke up and looked over the walls of Jerusalem, they saw 185,000 dead bodies scattered around the city. Amen. Where once there stood a mighty army, there was nothing but death and destruction. And if you keep reading, you find out that Sennacherib and a small remnant escaped and returned home to Nineveh, defeated and completely humiliated. And before Sennacherib could even try to raise up another army and make good on his threat against Jerusalem, his two sons killed him with the sword. And the threat was completely eliminated. Second Chronicles 32.22 sums it up real nicely. Second Chronicles 32.22 Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. Do you realize what that scripture means? And from the hand of all others. In other words, there were other battles to face other foes to be vanquished, and they were, hallelujah, because they established an attitude of they can have victory in the midst of seeming defeat. Amen. It was because of God's great love for his people that God answered Hezekiah's prayer, and they saw victory in the midst of seeming defeat. Their desperate situation went from certain defeat to overwhelming victory in just one night. It took just one angel one night to decimate the armies of Assyria, to completely eliminate the threat. And I'm here to tell you that God is not a respecter of persons. He loves you as much as he loved King Hezekiah. He loves you so fiercely and so intensely that he is ever ready to bring his overwhelming power against every foe that you will ever face. Whatever we're facing as individuals or as a nation, no matter how desperate it may seem, God can bring us victory in the midst of seeming defeat. Amen? Amen. We hope you enjoyed part one of Dr. Forrest's message, Victory in the Midst of Seeming Defeat. If you are in the Wilmington area and are looking for a place to worship, come join us on Sunday at 9.45 a.m. for coffee and fellowship and 10.30 for worship and service. If you would like to learn more about us and hear more of Dr. Forrest's teachings, visit our website at gofaithlife.com. Also, visit and like our Facebook page at Faith Life Wilmington.